Welcome. Glad to have you with us. It is seven minutes after 10 o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Uh, it is uh, time for my favorite economist, Professor Maurice Sabrin, who wrote a great piece. I was chuckling about this and thinking about my own mother uh, when uh, he talks about in his uh, latest column, we need a Jewish president. Oh, man. I used to. Uh, Professor uh, Maurice Sabrin, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Great to be with you, Gary. When I was a kid, uh, I used to watch my mother. She was first-generation American, uh, like you, uh, and uh, of Lebanese descent. And she was just good at bargaining. She would, she would take a stab at cutting a, a couple of bucks off of anything, and it worked. I, I watch her go to the West Side Market in Cleveland and dicker with people about vegetables when she was buying them. I mean, she just never stopped. Some people are good at it. Uh, and you say culturally, uh, Jewish people are good at this, and you'd like to see a Jewish president someday. Well, that's what we need, Gary. Uh, it looks like a non-Jewish presidents have failed the American people because all they do <laughs> is buy, run the government on a retail level, and we need to run the government on a wholesale level. <laughs> I love the last line in the column. I'm not going to reveal it, but it, it, it's a fun line that kind of wraps it all up. You said your parents were good at getting the most out of their dollars in the marketplace. Uh, you would, uh, you'd watch your mother, uh, especially, I don't know, maybe women are better at this than guys. Uh, but your father was good at it, but your mother is the one you highlighted here. Uh, the uh, welfare, go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying that uh, not many times I used to go with her shopping, but whenever they went to buy a big-ticket item, they tried to get the best possible deal. Listen, my father was making $3 an hour in the 1950s, so every dollar counted, every dime counted. So they had to be very, uh, I don't know if the word is frugal, but they had to watch every dollar that they earned and, and what dollars went out. So um, uh, unfortunately, I didn't break as much as, as they did in terms of uh, buying things, but uh, my mother was really good at it. And the way she did is um, uh, the store owner would say the price, and my mother would say, I don't think so. And then she would walk out the door, and they would come back and give her a price. So that's the way uh, she did this thing, and she was very successful at it. Uh, she helped us when we first got married. We were buying things for the apartment, and she went with us to buy a few things. And um, uh, I've learned that even in the in the big box stores, you could uh, you can negotiate if it's a big ticket item. But the small items, uh, you probably don't have to worry about. But uh, listen, we all know that uh, the MSRP of cars is just a starting point, except if it's a hot automobile market. But uh, some people are very good at negotiating car deals, and. Uh, you try to get the best possible deal possible because it's your money. You want to make sure you get the best value and you don't want to throw money around. Uh, for the average person, uh, every dollar that they earned is, is, is a lot to them because um, they're not making a uh, million dollars a year. If they're making sixty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year in America, they're just getting by. Yeah, uh, and I remember my mother reducing car salesmen to tears. Uh, and she would, oh, I, I will tell you a story. I'll call you after the show and tell you a story about my mother buying a Cadillac. And they called the police on her. Maybe I should, you know what, I'll, I'll tell the story right now. I will tell you the story. My mother went to a Cadillac dealer in Akron, Ohio. She had been to three Cadillac dealers in Cleveland. She found a Cadillac in, uh, in this uh, dealership. I won't mention their name. And she bought the car. And on the way home, this car just fell apart. Brand new oh sedan DeVille. 
Uh, 25 oh miles later, the car is on the side of the road. The dashboard is lit up like a Christmas tree. Uh, steam is pouring out. So she said, I want my money back. And, I, and there was just a, a case in the news about a guy who had bought a Vega and, and stored the car for years trying to get his money back. And the court said no. I said, Mom, you're, you're not going to get your money back. Let them fix the car. She said, no, I don't want it. She went back to the dealership. And she, she had cancer at the time, and she had this uh, cast on her back. And she stood in the middle of the dealership floor and said, this dealership sells lemons. I have cancer. I'm dying. I bought the, I could go to a junkyard. I can remember. I could go to a junkyard to buy a car that doesn't run. I didn't have to come to a Cadillac dealer. And she said, and if I can afford to pay for this car, I can afford to tow it up and down in front of the dealership with a sign up on top that says, this dealership sells lemons. Management came out. Mrs. Nolan, please come back to the office. I want my money back. And they, they literally, they called the police because she wouldn't get off the floor. And customers would come into the dealership, hear my mother rant, and walk out the door. Finally, uh, they said, uh, we will, we'll call you by 4 o'clock this afternoon and let you know what we're going to do. And at 4 o'clock that afternoon, the dealership called and said, the check is in the mail. We're taking the car back. Talk about tough to deal with. Huh? Well, this is the thing is most people don't have that fortitude or they don't have that um, uh, staying power because uh, uh, what, what are the first two rules of business? Uh, Warren Buffett always says, number one, the customer is always right. And number two, uh, check number one. <laughs> and, uh, and, if, and, and there are companies that will bend over. Back. I'll give you an example. I'm going to use the name of the store right now. Best Buy. We bought a refrigerator from Best Buy several years ago when we were living in New Jersey in the apartment. And... Before we uh, moved to Florida uh, two and a half years ago, uh, the uh, the compressor went on the um, on the um, refrigerator, and so um, we called them up and they said, "Well, it's out of warranty." So we bought a new refrigerator. Then uh, we got a letter saying we made a mistake, so we're going to refund you the money. And I've been a Best Buy customer ever since. Wow! Yeah, that kind of treatment. Uh, all right. This, this is this, this is why this is why companies who have good marketing and um, business savvy will have customers for a lifetime because they know that the customer is the key to their business. You lose customers, you're out of business. That's absolutely right. That we would have a, we would have a stronger economy, and if we get the government out of our way, as as I've been writing about for fifty years or more, uh, we'd be in much better shape. And I think we're seeing this. Um, playing out now in the automobile strike, uh, the government has just screwed up, uh, to use a technical term, the automobile industry, and they just have to get out of the way with all the mandates, with EV and all the green energy stuff, and just let the consumer decide what type of automobiles they want. I'm not opposed to unions as long as everything is voluntary. I volunteer to join yeah, the business, absolutely. volunteers to do business with the unions. I, I, I just don't like anything being mandatory. So let me ask you, uh, with your background, what would what is the advantage to these unions for the consumer oh nothing absolutely nothing i mean I, the thing is most people don't understand economics most people think that companies set prices and the austrian school of economics points out that no the consumers set the prices because of the concept of subjective value i'll give you another example 1972 we took a vacation in spain 
And there's a wonderful store in, in uh, I think it was Barcelona, El Cortes Inglés, a beautiful store. It uh, reminds me of uh, Nordstrom's. And so we went there and, um, uh, well, we didn't go there. It, it, right next to the uh, store, there was a, a street market. And this woman, I'm, I'm speaking my broken Spanish, and I'm looking at a nice leather jacket, and uh, she, she tells me the price, and I say, um, uh, I don't think so. And she says, this this uh, item sells for this amount of uh, posadas in um, in El Cortes Inglés. So I said, I'm not in Cortes, I'm not in the store. I'm in this hot cobblestone street in, in the uh, open air. And, and she says, uh, Seguro, you're right, you're right. And so I, I barking down the price of whatever it was for a nice leather jacket. But that's the whole point. When people go to a, a, a fancy department store, they expect to pay a high price because of all the ambiance and the quality of the products that they're buying there. And so when you go to a flea market, you don't expect to pay a high price because it's, 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 it's not the ambiance that you get in the Saks Fifth Avenue or Nordstrom or Bloomingdale's or whatever. And so the consumer sets the price of the product, not the producer, because if that was the case, why wouldn't all the producers set their prices at outrageous prices? Because there's a thing called the demand curve, and people will not buy items. Uh, Hello? Professor? It's too expensive. I'm not oh, going to buy it. Yeah. All right, we lost you there for a second. I got a couple more economics questions here, but I'm up against the sure. clock. Can you hang on for a few? Sure, absolutely. All right. Because I think labor is a commodity, just like steel and aluminum and rubber and glass when you're building a car. Uh, and it, it, it's, you know, you, you look for the best deal on all of these things. Why can't you do that with labor? I do that when I'm shopping. I don't know. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll kick that around in just a minute with Professor Murray Sabrin on The Gary Nolan Show, The Zimmer Radio Network. Professor Murray Sabrin, our guest, welcome. Glad to have you with us. 20 minutes after 10 o'clock, America needs a Jewish president. It's funny, but it's true. It's a great piece. Uh, you can read his columns at uh, murraysabrin.substack.com. Uh, get his book. It's a fascinating book about his, uh, his upbringing, his childhood. Uh, and uh, you're going to be um, speaking somewhere, uh, I think in Florida, aren't you? Yeah, uh, November 4th, hopefully people in Southwest Florida and beyond. Uh, you can make a great weekend out of it in Southwest Florida. November 4th, I'll be speaking at the Nisi Circle. We're talking about the Federal Reserve, the White House, and uh, the upcoming election. And I'll be putting together a presentation on where the economy is and where I think it's going and uh, why everything is coming to a head. Uh, the perfect storm is unfolding right before our eyes. And I think future historians will say that the uh, 2020s will be remarkably similar to the 1920s, and we know how that decade ended. All right. Um, so, uh, if anybody wants to attend, how do they? You know, do you have a website or something they can look up? Well, on my Substack piece uh, that I wrote that, uh, yesterday, that's at murraysaben.substack.com. There's a link to the registration for the Nisi Circle, November 4th in Fort Myers, and uh, anyone within a hundred miles can get there in uh, less than two hours, and it starts later in the morning. So. Uh, hopefully, a lot of uh, people who are listening from the uh, from the South Florida area, anywhere from uh, West Palm Beach down to Miami, up to uh, Tampa, can go. And uh, seating is limited, so get it your registration in early because uh, it's not. Uh, we don't have a thousand seats, so we just have uh, about a hundred plus seats to, for the audience. And there'll be three other economists there. Uh, giving that viewpoint on the economy. So it should be a very informative thing. And you can meet some of the top people at the Mises Institute. Uh, we'll put together a 40-year organization that is second to none in, in uh, analyzing the economy 
and offering solutions to the welfare workers that we have today. All right, uh, let me get back to labor. Um, if a car manufacturer is uh, going out to buy steel, they shop for the best price on steel or glass or plastic or whatever product it is. Shouldn't they be able to do that with labor? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is why accounting is so important because first of all, you gotta figure out what are consumers going to pay for my product? So that's the starting point. Then once you know, have a good idea for that, and that's what entrepreneurship is all about. What are consumers going to pay? Then you've got to figure out how do I put this product together so I can pay my cost given the price that people are going to pay and, and still make a profit. And that includes labor and all the inputs that you have in, in the manufacturing process. And this is always a trial and error thing with companies. I remember going to stores, Gary, and you go to the store and what do you see? A new product is out and they have it at, let's say, $200. And nobody shows up to buy it. So then the company lowers the price to 175 and They see what the demand is at 175 then at 150 But in the meantime, if they uh, produce the product at a very high cost, they're not going to make much money if, if, if they're selling it for 150 and it costs them 149 to make it. So uh, entrepreneurship is the key, and entrepreneurship plus labor gives you a great outcome. And this is why labor and capital have to work together with, with entrepreneurship, guiding the ship, so to speak, of every company in America. The people on the left would argue, Professor, that that's going to create a race to the bottom. If they can go out and shop for the best price, uh, the lowest cost labor, that it's going to just create this race to the bottom. Everybody will be in poverty and it will destroy the economy. Uh, this is so absurd because all you have to do is go to Haiti. Haiti has the lowest wage costs in the, in the world. Why aren't all companies going to Haiti to manufacture their goods? Because Haiti doesn't have the infrastructure, they don't have the legal structure, they don't have a, a highly skilled uh, labor force, therefore people are not going to Haiti to, to manufacture their goods. They're going to places where you have all the things necessary, uh, a good legal system, infrastructure, um, uh, a well-educated workforce, uh, a sound money to, to, that you need in order to tra make your transactions. Uh, this is absurd. If you look at the history of America, labor has been, the standard of living of workers have gone up tremendously the last hundred years, absolutely tremendously from a hundred years ago, from right after World War One to the present, workers today. I mean, you go to communities where you have a lot of blue-collar workers, they may have second homes, they may have boats, they may have two, three cars in the driveway. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're in a high-tech industry, uh, like automobiles, where the workers are making 50 60 $70 an hour, I mean, I've heard stories of car technicians at the dealerships making six figures. These are kids in their 20s, in their, in their 30s, making six-figure salaries, being an auto technician at, at dealers. So there is plenty of opportunity for, for people to use, quote, labor to make incredible amounts of money that uh, their parents could, could never have dreamed that they would be making. By the way, people, you were speaking of Hades, people have been telling me to go there for years. At least it sounds like go to, well, never mind. Uh, it's a little hot down <laughs> there anyway. Um, so um, my, my point here is that if you underpay your, your labor, yeah. You begin to suffer a lack of, you, you've got productivity problems because the good workers will go somewhere where they can get paid what they're worth. Absolutely. If you overpay, then you're losing profit and you're in trouble again. So we don't need the unions. We just need the free market. Well, that's it. I mean, uh, unions are doing uh, 
two good things. They have great picnics and they, uh, and they uh, cause unemployment because we know that uh, during the Depression, and, and this is the amazing thing that people don't know their economic history. During the Depression, uh, companies that kept wages up when we had a deflation, their unemployment rates skyrocketed. And um, uh, companies that had, that cut wages because costs were falling and prices were falling, unemployment was minuscule compared to the average in the country. So, again, the, the concept of supply and demand is always going to work in the marketplace because that is the, the uh, foundation of how we transact our goods and services in our economy. And when the politicians try to override that with minimum wage laws and rent control and what have you, uh, they cause all sorts of problems, shortages of surpluses. We saw this during the oil crisis of the 1970s. The government screwed up the uh, oil market. Now oil is available, gasoline is available. Of course, it's higher price than it was a couple of years ago because of Biden's um, counterproductive policies. But uh, if you have a free market, supply and demand will be in balance and uh, people will pay if they can for things that they want. And if they can't afford them, then they save or they go into credit card debt, which is a whole other story. I'd love to have taken your classes. I would have been, I would have been, I would have missed a class. Professor Murray Sabrin, uh, thank you for being with us. Appreciate it. We'll chat with you again next week. Absolutely. Great to be with you, Gary. All right. Take care. Professor Murray Sabrin. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been a fun class? All right. So Democrats keep saying, well, there's just nothing that's tying Hunter Biden to Joe Biden. There's just no connection anywhere. It just isn't happening. And so they are, you know, kind of, I guess they're gaslighting us. I guess that's what the Democrats do all the time. But now something new has popped up. And I think it gets a lot closer to Joe Biden, undeniably closer to Joe Biden. I wonder how the Democrats are going to respond to this. I know. You 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 know? I you, know, yes. I already know exactly what they're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've sniffed them out. No, don't tip the hand there, no, buddy. No, I, I mean, won't. I won't yet. But Yeah. Uh, so we're going to get to that uh, segment in uh, just a couple of minutes. We'll get you up to date first about what's going on around town and around the world. And then uh, we'll, uh, we'll have a little conversation about some polling data and censorship. So that's coming up. Uh, but be before I even get to that, I want to talk to you about the Food and Drug Administration, a great piece in the Wall Street Journal. And it is exactly what I've been telling you. For years, I've been preaching that the Food and Drug Administration kills more people than it saves. Yesterday, there was a column talking about uh, how perverted the marketplace is for antibiotics. You come up with a brand new antibiotic, a stronger one, you can't market it. You go out of business. And it's all because the government's involved. This article today deals with those uh, maladies that, well, they're called orphan drugs for a reason. Because there aren't a lot of people who are affected by these maladies. And there are pharmaceutical companies who have come up with some great products. But they can't get past the Food and Drug Administration. I'll share that with you probably in the next 10 or 15 minutes on The Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network.
This is the Gary Nolan Show. 1035, glad to have you with us. Uh, uh, we're going to do this uh, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden co- connection here in just a minute, but I want to talk about the uh, the FDA, this great piece in the Wall Street Journal, and, it, it, and it, it, it illustrates exactly what I've been telling you for years. That when the government gets involved in anything, trying to make it seem like it's going to be less expensive for you, it ultimately ends up being more expensive and probably less effective. There are orphan diseases, diseases that don't affect a lot of people. And pharmaceutical companies have to spend billions of dollars to get a drug on the drugstore shelf for you to buy. So you, you don't want the government to cripple this. Well, there is, there is a, a, a disease that's called, and I'm, I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, Arginase 1 deficiency. Uh, ARG1D is what it's called, and it causes uh, amino acid and amino acid to accumulate in the blood of people who suffer from this. And this causes uh, brain seizures, stunted growth, uh, intellectual disability. And a pharmaceutical company has come up with a wonderful drug. Apparently, uh, I mean, the results are fabulous. The Food and Drug Administration won't even consider this pharmaceutical. They are just ignoring the data. So people who are suffering from uh, ARG1D are are not going to see the cure. This is really, you know, it's, it's just, it's painful to believe that your government is killing people and crippling them, but they are. This is a very rare disease. So in order for them to do testing, it's very challenging. Just gathering people when you've got, you know, few around the country who suffer from the disease is a task. So they came up with this this therapy and uh, it actually, it, it works. The amount of, uh, I guess it's arginine uh, or arginine uh, present in the blood plasma declined by 80% for patients uh, with this disease. After only six months, 90 plus percent of patients who got the drug had normal levels and it was sustained over time. The data also suggests that uh, progressive improvements in motor function um, were were noticed uh, compared with uh, the placebo and patients apparently tolerated the therapy well. This is jaw-dropping. This is a phenomenal uh, turnout for for this uh, therapy. The Food and Drug Administration refused to even look at their data. Instead, they demanded that the firm do additional studies, get more data uh, that suggests this, this therapy will produce a clinical benefit in addition to eliminating this uh, excess enzyme. But for RG1D and other uh, rare diseases, uh, if you're measuring clinical outcomes, it can take years. And where are you going to get enough people to do another, you know, a more in-depth study? This is the Food and Drug Administration Getting in the way. And don't tell me, oh, we've got that high-speed thing. Oh, we, we, we can uh, get a drug approved right away. It's not working that way. Biomarkers are uh, why the Food and Drug Administration 
uh, created this accelerated approval uh, pathway, this back in, in 1992. It lets developers to submit data measuring surrogate endpoints. In other words, it, it, just the, the necessary information, and it's not working. They're not passing it. This isn't the only drug. There are others. But the government gets in the way in the too stupid mentality. And it's worse than this. I don't know. Brian, you don't wear glasses. You don't wear contacts. I, I wear, don't, no. Uh, so here's another example of the government getting in the way. Well, they have to. Because you're, you're too, too stupid. stupid. You know, they, they did the right to try thing during the Trump administration. I thought that was fantastic. Give people an opportunity to, hey, this drug is not approved by the FDA. But if you're, you know, wanting to give it a shot, sign on the dotted line. And if it works, I mean, you are taking the risk. But the government says, no, you're too, you're too stupid, stupid to make You can't make those choices. Yeah. So... I wear contact lenses, or I wear a contact lens, and I get a prescription, and I may not want to change that prescription for a couple of years. It works fine for me. Uh, I just want to go out and buy another box of lenses that will get me through the next year. I can't do that. I can't take that box that I, that I got from my prescription, go into a drugstore or uh, order online, those contact lenses for a second year because I have to have a prescription <laughs> from an optometrist. So for years, what I did, because I, I was not going to go back uh, and see an optometrist every year because the government mandated it. I didn't need it, and I wasn't going to do it. So I would order my contact lenses from outside the country. i say, here's what's on the box. This is what I need. And that's how I got my contact lenses. But the government mandates you go every year. Who does this benefit? Optometrists. And so it drives up the cost of, of eye care for everybody who wants to buy a, a pair of glasses. It's insane. But they do this because they think you're going to go out and prescribe your own contact lenses. And in that case, you can't do that. We can't let you have the ability to just go out and buy contacts because you're too stupid. You might try and write your own prescription. Well, I don't know anybody that would. It's possible somebody might. But that's not an excuse for driving up my price for contact lenses. You want to see an eye doctor every year? It's probably not a bad idea. That's fine. Go do it. If I want to run the risk of, uh, of not getting uh, an eye exam every year, maybe I get glaucoma or some other undiagnosed. I get to do that. I get to make that choice. I suffer the consequences if I'm wrong. I reap the benefits if I'm right. But the government won't let you do that. The government involvement in health care in every respect drives up prices and drives down quality. You know, I, I think I might want to do one of those uh, uh, college. What, what is that uh, university that we always play the audio from? Oh, Prager U. Prager U. Yeah, I think I should do a Prager University piece. Probably. Hey, uh, a question about the contact lenses. Let's assume yeah. that someone said, "Yeah, I'm going to go out and write my own prescription because I know what I uh, need for my eyes." 
they use those contact lenses, can the prescription, if it's wrong, can it actually ruin your eyes and you, you can go and sue somebody over that? Or is that what they're worried about? I, I don't know. If you get the wrong, I mean, there's a curvature and plus and minus and all kinds of calculations that have to be made. And if you get that wrong, you can scratch the, the cornea, you can, you can be in real pain. Um, most of the time, that's the sort of thing that, you know, you take the thing out, you realize it's, it doesn't fit, and uh, it heals, and, and you, you go on. But I don't know anybody. I mean, I don't know anybody outside of optometry who would say, well, here's the curvature of my eye. Let's take a step. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen. All it does is make you go to the eye doctor every year to the benefit of optometrists everywhere. And look, I'm not attacking optometry. Uh, without it, uh, I'd be bouncing off walls, I'm sure. But don't make me go see an eye doctor every year just because I need more contact lenses. In fact, for years, I stayed with a solid lens. It, you know, there's a much more comfortable contact lens. It's the, it's the soft lens, the liquid-filled lens. But you run out of them. They're disposable. I went for years with a hard lens just because I didn't have to renew it. And that's probably worse than letting me just go out and get, you know, a, a new soft lens. But they don't care. It makes money for the eye doctors. Uh, all right. So the Democrats are arguing that there is no connection to Joe Biden. There's no all evidence these, at all. Oh, nothing. Uh -huh. Nothing. It, it, in spite of the fact that he had phone calls with these people uh, that that were he that Hunter was doing business with, that he flew on Air Force Two to these some of these countries with Joe Biden. In spite of the fact that they keep changing the story, I had no idea. I didn't. Uh, I had nothing to do with it. He never spoke to me. Well, he talked to me, but I still wasn't involved. And it was I just mean, the weather we were talking about. That's it. Yeah, uh, for the whole trip. So the Democrats are arguing, that, you know, I know there's all this smoke, but there's no connection. Well, now there is. We'll share it with you next on the Gary Nolan Show, Zimmer Radio Network. It is 10 minutes to 11. Glad to have you with us. And uh, Brian, have you noticed how terrible the Internet has been the last few years? Oh, man, it's just been awful. Oh, just terrible. But that's okay because... I know why it's been awful. Why, why has it been awful? Well, because we didn't get to the net neutrality thing that the Democrats told us that, you know, it would make the playing field even for everybody. Oh, well, well, you're, you're in luck, Brian. Uh, they're bringing it back. Oh, good, good, uh, good. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the state of the uh, Internet in just a few minutes. Uh, but we keep hearing from the Democrats there is just there's no connection... There is no connection between Hunter Biden's uh, business and Joe Biden. I mean, in spite of all of this stuff that we're hearing, you know, having to share the money with dad, uh, uh, having uh, the, you know, the big guy, uh, getting phone calls, going to dinner with these people, all of this. And the Democrats go, no, 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 there's, this, there's still no connection. Well, now there is. Because apparently Hunter Biden uh, got a, a, a wire transfer from communist China and it came to Joe Biden's house in Delaware where he was living. 
It just it just keeps getting closer and closer. Now it's under his roof. But there's nothing to fear, nothing to see here. It just keeps moving. Uh, his Delaware, uh, Biden's Delaware home was listed as the beneficiary addressed on two wire transfers to Hunter Biden from communist China. Uh, James Comer, who's the chair of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, got these bank records by using a subpoena. Hunter got payments from Beijing in 2019 when the vice president, when Biden was the vice president. And they used his Wilmington, Delaware home. You can't tell me there's no connection. I can explain that. Really? Uh I got a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, Hunter was living at that house at the time. Yeah, and he was just, you know, filling that out as a secondary address, kind of. Yeah, he was so broke that he had no place else to get a quarter million dollars delivered to his door that he had to go to his father's house. Yeah, I mean, China was so interested in his artwork that, uh, you know, they were just sending him money uh, via wire transfers, and uh, it was pretty lucrative for them. Yeah, I imagine. And Burisma, Burisma was just so lucky to get a guy who is an expert on, on oh, uh, I know uh, oil. Isn't it, isn't it kind of ironic that Mister? I don't want gasoline-powered engines, and I want to stop drilling for oil. That his son made millions of dollars. I know on an oil on Parisma. <laughs> Can't make it up. Yeah, but this has nothing to do with Joe Biden. It's just coincidence. Oh, oh, how, how, how can they possibly want you to believe all of this? It just doesn't make sense. Um, there is, there was this push by the Obamunist to write this net neutrality and net neutrality law and act as though it is somehow a utility that needs regulated. And without net neutrality, the Internet is going to collapse in on itself. Speeds will be slowed down. There will be all kinds of things that happen that shouldn't happen if the government just gets involved. Everything will be okay. Well, the FCC, well, Donald Trump apparently killed that uh, with Edget Pay. Edget Pay. I knew I could get that right. Uh, he, he rescinded the net neutrality rules. And yet somehow, the Wall Street Journal says, the Internet is working faster than ever. But President Biden, now back in control of the FCC, is going to fix this problem that doesn't exist by reimposing net neutrality. I'm sorry, you're going to fix something that's not broke? Yeah. Uh, For what purpose would that be? Because we want to. Because you want to break it, maybe? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, we can't let anything go unregulated by the government. Oh, I see. You can't trust people. You can't trust them because, well, they're all just too stupid. 
What was I thinking? I don't know, but on Tuesday, the new head of the FCC announced plans to reinstate this net neutrality rule, and uh, it would reclassify broadband providers as a common carrier under the 1934 Communications Act, which in and of itself shouldn't exist. For some reason, progressives have, have been pushing for this for years. Broadband providers have to be regulated like a utility so they wouldn't slow or block websites, but providers aren't doing it. They, they are not doing this. And it's been gone since 2018. We got faster broadband speeds. By the end of 2019, 94% of Americans had access to high-speed fixed and mobile broadband, up from 77% in 2015. Between 2016 and 2019, the number of rural Americans lacking high-speed Internet fell by 50%. Broadband investment, when Obama pushed this net neutrality thing in 2015... Broadband investment dipped. It went down. But when they got rid of it, the, the industry spent like $102 billion on capital expenditures, uh, up from $76 billion in 2016. So they, they invested more money in making the Internet better and faster for all of us. Now, Europe, broadband providers... They treat them like utilities, like what the Democrats and the administration want to do right now to the Internet. By comparison, by 2020, United States, our rural fixed broadband deployment led all of the areas in the European Union. The digital divide between Europe and the United States has been growing as investments per household is three times higher in the United States. The government would just cripple investment but the democrats just can't let go they just have to regulate everything and and try and tell you that somehow things are going to be much better when they're in control and it never ever turns out that way carriers aren't slowing down service they're not charging web store websites more for faster speeds the regulations don't address social media censorship since big tech wouldn't be covered. There's no point in this. But I guarantee you, if it sticks, if it lasts, you will find fewer investment dollars involved in uh, high-speed internet. Things will slow down. They'll make a mess of it. They always do. All right, uh, we got us some John Stossel coming up on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show.